Mark chapter 15. We're going to actually begin looking at a few verses that we closed last Sunday's message examining, but we're going to look at them from a bit of a different angle. Verse 42, if you'd read with me. Now, when evening had come, because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, it is technically Friday afternoon, the Sabbath began at 6 p.m. at sunset that evening, that Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, we're told in John that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. He goes to Pilate, and we're told that he asks for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead, and he summoned the centurion, and he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And so Joseph brought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in the tomb. We know his partner in crime was Nicodemus, the tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the door of the tomb, and were noted that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, observed where he had been laid. Now, last Sunday, in examining these verses, we we really took an in-depth look at Joseph, this man from Arimathea, and his role in the burial of Jesus. It was his tomb. It was a, a costly tomb. He personally cashes in some political chips to get the body from Pilate. He takes the body himself down from the cross. He takes it to the tomb. He and Nicodemus prepare the body, as was the custom of the Jews, and they bury him. However, Aside from Joseph's role in regards to these verses, it's important for us to look at them from a different angle, and that being the role of Pontius Pilate in the burial of Jesus, because Mark is going to provide a few details, a few bits of important information that really establish the context for what's about to come next. Disclaimer, full disclosure, spoiler alert, Jesus is about to be resurrected from the dead. And so some of the details Mark gives us are important for our understanding of the resurrection. The first thing that we can note with assurance from these verses, the one thing that in examining these verses and Pilate's role in the scene, the one thing we can walk away from with certitude is that Jesus died on the cross. Now that might seem like a very simple Uh, a point to make from the text. And yet, many people have disputed the fact that Jesus had died. According to Mark, Pilate's immediate response to Joseph's request for the body is genuine surprise that Jesus was already dead. Don't forget, a Roman crucifixion was not an effective way of killing someone. It was more PR stunt than execution. It was to communicate the power and the might of Rome, especially in a reaction to those that might rebel. The shortest crucifixion, the shortest time on a cross, according to Roman records, was 13 hours, the longest being 13 days. Jesus died in six hours, and so this catches the attention of Pilate. Joseph is coming for the body. He looks down at his sundial, and he thinks to himself, wait a second. Is he already dead? He has initially a bit of skepticism. And because this was abnormal, the length in which it took for Jesus to die on the cross, Pilate requested, according to Mark, an official autopsy report from the centurion who was in charge of Jesus' execution 
before he would grant permission for Joseph to claim the body. Look at it again. Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead, and so he summoned the centurion. He asked him how long he had been dead. And when he found out from the centurion, when he gets the report, he granted the body to Joseph. Now, in my estimation, the centurion's report would have been something as follows. Because of the complex social concerns and the direct order from Tiberius not to inflame tensions with the Jews, we've determined that with the Jewish Sabbath beginning at sundown, it was only prudent that we expedite the execution process of these three Hebrew subjects by breaking their legs, as was their custom, so that they would quickly suffocate. With the inability to push up on your feet, to inhale and exhale, you would suffocate. That was how most people died from a Roman cross. As the report continued, after completing the process with two of the three criminals, when we came to the man that they referred to as Jesus, we concluded that the need to expedite his execution was no longer necessary, as it appeared that he had already deceased. Don't forget that the centurion had been there when Jesus had done what? Had cried out, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathed his last. And so his report would say, though I personally, I witnessed his death, to ascertain as to the cause, we drove a spear upward through the fifth inner space between the ribs, through the pedicardium, into the heart. Not only did this confirm that Jesus was was indeed dead because he didn't flinch, we also discovered that from the wound flowed a mixture of blood and water, signifying that Jesus didn't die from suffocation, but instead died from cardiac arrest. The centurion's report would conclude that our postmortem determined that Jesus died, not in the usual, usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure, due to the constriction of the heart by the pedicardium. So this is the report. Pilate, he's skeptical that Jesus is already dead after six hours. He wants to hear it from the man himself, the man in charge, the man responsible for Jesus' execution. He gets the report. And so he reads through it. He's flipping through it. The diagrams exist showing exactly how Jesus died. Pilate's skepticism has been sufficed that Jesus is dead so that What does he do in response? He grants that Joseph of Arimathea could have the body. And this detail is important because in order to discredit the historical veracity of the resurrection of Jesus, some have presented a theory, an alternative account of what really took place to discount the resurrection known as the swoon theory. The swoon theory argues that Jesus was crucified, appeared to be dead, was taken down from the cross, was laid in the tomb. But upon entering the tomb, after some time, Jesus was revived. The cool, damp air stirred his spirit. He regained consciousness, at which point he then escaped from the tomb and fabricated the story of his resurrection so that he could spark and start the Christian religion. This is, and if you've ever had debates with people that would try to discredit the resurrection, a common theory. In 1780, theologian Carl Frederick Barth claimed that Jesus had actually used drugs provided to him by Dr. Luke 
so that he could fake his death before being resuscitated by his friend, Joseph. In 1800, theologian Carl Venturini proposed that two of Jesus' followers happened to be cruising by the garden tomb. And what did they find? They heard through the five-toned stone, Jesus groaning, of which this surprised them. And so they broke in and they helped Jesus compose himself and get himself together. And then they frightened away by pretending to be angels, the Roman guards, their commission to protect. In, 18, in 1982, more recently, a book titled Holy Blood, Holy Grail, a group of other so-called theologians proposed the idea that Pilate had actually been bribed by Joseph to allow Jesus to be removed from the cross before he had actually died. And then Joseph and Jesus crafted this hoax. The earliest, it's interesting to note, the earliest presentation of the swoon theory is actually presented by Muhammad in the Quran. Many Muslims believe that Jesus faked his death and ended up going to India where he would die of natural causes. The idea was popularized in a book written in 1899 titled Jesus in India. My point is that though you might initially think that the idea of the swoon theory is craziness, many people believe it. Many people form this as a theory, as a, an argument of skepticism. But they overlook three basic problems. There's three problems with the swoon theory first, it's a big leap to conclude that the Romans, especially the centurion, the legionnaires, would have overlooked that Jesus was still alive. These men, it should be pointed out, were expert killers. They knew what they were doing. They had been trained, educated in the art of killing. They had done it before on numerous occasions. These men knew what death looked like to the point that they would go through and to ensure death, break the victim's legs. The second problem is that history states that Pilate, according to our text, he received an official medical report from the executioner in charge, which validated that Jesus died from cardiac arrest, thus he released the body. So the first problem is to think that the Romans would have mistakenly allowed Jesus to be taken down and not have done their duty. And then there's an official report signifying an autopsy. It should also be mentioned that if a Roman was derelict in his duties to execute a prisoner charged with treason, and that man end up being alive, not only would the centurion in charge of the execution, but everyone else involved in the proceedings would have then been taken upon themselves the crime of the person they failed to execute. Thus, they would all have been crucified themselves. And the third problem with the swoon theory is ultimately it just doesn't jive with the rest of the story. I mean, it seems illogical that if Jesus somehow had been able to survive the scourging and the crucifixion to the point that he was revived by the cool air of the tomb, that he would have then been able to do all the physical exercises that the gospel records claim that he did. We've already addressed what the scourging looked like. We've addressed the, the shape Jesus would have been in and in the, in the crucifixion itself. 
Think about that man after he's been taken down and then cleaned by Joseph of Arimathea and then laid in a tomb and then prepared for burial. If he did regain consciousness and he finds himself wrapped in burial clothes, like it seems to me to be a leap to conclude that he would have had the strength to have escaped. He would have had to be Houdini to get out of the burial clothes. And then he would have had to be the, the Hulk to roll back a five-ton five ton stone, he would have then had to have been Thor in, in order to scare away or overpower a collection of Roman guards. I'm running out of Marvel comic characters enough to, to say that he then at that point would have had to, to chase up to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I mean, the idea of, okay, if Jesus had in some ways been resuscitated, would he have then been able to do all of the physical things we find in Scripture in that kind of a condition? You see, the truth is that his bodily presence, would it have really been motivation for the disciples to then start a new religion based on his resurrection and the condition he was? I mean, imagine for a moment the disciples hanging out in the upper room, and then there appears a bloody, dehydrated, emaciated Jesus staggering into their midst only to declare, I have risen. Jesus in that point would have demanded medical attention, not reverence as the prince of life. Alexander Mithrell, he stated aptly, a person in the kind of pathetic condition we find Jesus after a scourging and crucifixion would have never been able to inspire his disciples to then go out and proclaim that he was the Lord of life who had triumphed over the grave. It's just simply illogical. Now, the second thing, the second observation we can make from this text that's important before we even get to the resurrection itself is that, first, there's no mistaking the reality that Jesus died. We know he died. No debate. Secondly, we also see that there was no mistaking the location of Jesus' tomb. Not only has Mark been clear that the tomb was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, it was a wealthy piece of real estate. It would have been part of the public record. But he also tells us that both Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, had observed where Jesus had been laid. They knew where Jesus had been place. They knew the tomb. They knew the location. They knew the garden. The word we find observed literally means to view attentively, to take view of, to survey. They followed and they made a mental marker of the location. And if that weren't enough, Matthew chapter 27 provides another important detail. Let me read it for you. After releasing the body to Joseph, we're told that the chief priests, the Pharisees, gathered together to Pilate. And they said to him, sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. They were concerned of a hoax. So the last deception will now be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, have a guard, go your way, make it secure as you know how. And so they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone, and setting the guard. Now this means that in addition to Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, 
Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus. There are two chief priests, Annas and Caiaphas, an unspecified number of Pharisees, Pontius Pilate, 16 Roman soldiers that all knew exactly where Jesus' body had been buried. They all knew where the tomb was located. And this detail is important. Because, once again, in order to discredit the historical veracity of the resurrection of Jesus, some have claimed that the tomb was empty only because the followers of Jesus went to the wrong tomb. And that Jesus is still out there somewhere, his body lying in some tomb. And we're just awaiting archaeologists to uncover the dead body of Jesus. But there are two problems with this theory. First, it ignores the facts presented in Scripture. You can't make that argument from the facts presented by the historical documents we find titled Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But secondly, if that were the case, with so many people knowing where Jesus had been laid, it would have been very easy for the Jewish leaders, his enemies, to have discredited the claims of the disciples that Jesus had been resurrected. Why? Because they could have easily gone to the tomb, pulled out his body, and shown it to the people. I mean, the reality is that nowhere in Scripture does anyone, even his enemies and the Romans, debate this one fact that the tomb that Jesus had been laid after three days was now empty. William Lane Craig, he says, if the tomb weren't empty, it would be impossible for a movement founded on the belief of the resurrection to have come into existence in the same city where the man had been publicly executed and publicly buried. And so it seems illogical once again that they could have mistaken the tomb. It just goes against all of the evidence presented, the facts. But the third thing that we get from, well, I'm going to say this section of Scripture. It's not specifically mentioned here in Mark chapter 15, but we've already just looked at it in Matthew uh, 27. The third thing that we gather from the Scriptures, first, Jesus was dead. Second, everyone knew where the tomb was. But thirdly, it would have been impossible for someone to have stolen the body of Jesus. First, it should be mentioned that none of the gospel authors present anyone with incentive or motivation to steal the body of Jesus. Secondly, according to the verses in Matthew 27, Pilate, to suffice the concerns of the Jewish leaders, that some kind of shady business would take place over the next couple days, Pilate gives them two things to ensure that the body would be secured, that no one would have access to steal the body. First, he gives them a Roman guard detail. Secondly, he provides them an official Roman wax seal to secure the stone in front of the tomb. According to historical records, a Roman guard would have consisted of 16 men and each of these men, in order to be included in the Roman guard, to get to this point in their training, they would have to be proficient in three tactical arts of warfare. First, they would have to be an expert at using the javelin. They would then have to be an expert at using a long sword, 
and they would have to be an expert with using a dagger. A javelin, a long sword, and a dagger, each of these 16 men were, would have been experts at. Now, this detail becomes important because, once again, in order to discredit the historical veracity of the resurrection of Jesus, some have claimed, and this is probably the most popular, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus in order to create a new religion. That, in some ways, in order to save face. They stole the body, and they created an elaborate hoax that Jesus had been resurrected. But there are three problems with this theory. First, it's a stretch, to say the least, that the disciples possessed the ability to steal the body. I mean, stealing the body of Christ, if they had put together their collective knowledge, it would have been the ultimate mission impossible. I mean, you can hear the music. Because what would take place? First, the body. It's been encased in a tomb. A tomb carved into a hillside that only possesses one very small entrance for one man. The entrance was then sealed off by a five-ton stone that would take multiple people to move outside of the tomb itself were 16 trained killers on a 24-hour security detail with the one job to do what? To ensure that the disciples wouldn't be able to steal the body. It would mean that they would need disguises. Their element of surprise would be limited. I mean, to think that they would have the ability to pull off this kind of a task, that seems crazy. The tomb is secure. And not to mention, I mean, were any of these guys experts in the javelin, the long spear, and, you know, the short sword? Were any, I mean, judging by Peter, the leader, judging by his fencing abilities in the Garden of Gethsemane upon the, the arrest of Jesus, I mean, the man couldn't hit a dude in the head. He clipped off an ear. He went after a servant boy instead of any of the guards that were coming. I mean, none of these guys possessed the know-how to be able to steal the body to overpower 16 Roman soldiers. They were not a well-organized commando unit. The second problem is that there's no motivation. You got to answer this question. I mean, what would be the motivation for them to steal the body? In realizing the inevitable fate when they saw Jesus arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, these men did what? Scriptures tell us that they ran and they hid as cowards. What's the motivation now? I mean, what underlying motivation would there be at this point for them to rendezvous back at the upper room and to figure out a plan so that they could steal the body of Jesus? Who wants a dead body at this point? especially when there would be a lot to lose. You see, if they failed in the task, the punishment for breaking a Roman seal, for attempting to steal a body that had been condemned to death by Rome, or attacking a Roman soldier would have been their own crucifixion by death. They have a lot to lose if they failed, and then you have to think, what do they have to gain by stealing the body? You know, it's true that lies and deceptions are typically done with some kind of ulterior motivation by the instigator. 
I mean, if you're examining what motivation would the disciples have to steal the body of Jesus, you have to think, well, what would they gain? They have a lot to lose. So what would they really have to gain in being successful? You see, preaching the resurrection of Jesus, it didn't bring any of these men, not one of the disciples' wealth. It's not like they got rich off of it. It didn't bring them fame. It didn't bring them status. It didn't bring them popularity. It didn't provide family security. Most of these men, not only were their families persecuted, but they were hated. They were scorned. They were persecuted. They were excommunicated from Jewish society, from their own culture, their own people group. They were imprisoned, exiled, beheaded, skinned alive, boiled in oil, tortured, in some instances crucified. Peter, history tells us, upside down after they crucified his wife in front of him. You see, why would the disciples make up the resurrection story to worship a dead guy who lied to them it was nothing more than an exposed fraud. Remember, Jesus had been very clear that what would happen after death, three days in the grave, he would be resurrected to life. That means that on day four, if Jesus is still in the tomb, he's not who he claimed to be. If Jesus remained dead, he's not their Messiah. If Jesus remained dead, he's certainly not God. But there's a third reason that the idea that the disciples stole the body is kind of lunacy. From our examination, 15 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, has there been anything about the disciples? To not only say that they possessed like the military might to pull off this kind of a hoax, but let's just be real, that they were smart enough to do it. I mean, these men were not bright. Think about it this way. If the resurrection were indeed a hoax, it was a hoax that was so brilliantly conceived and so perfectly executed that it just didn't impact a generation or a region. But it was such an elaborate, incredible hoax that it changed the course of human history. I mean, each day for the rest of history, this, this one hoax would have been so ingenious that thousands of people initially skeptical of it would convert, follow, and then die for a lie. That's a brilliant hoax. For a hoax to become so universally accepted that the entire world would change their calendars to reflect his birth and then his death. You see, the reality is we don't see anywhere in Scripture the disciples demonstrating the kind of intellectual brilliance required to pull off the hoax. Not to mention, you would have to conclude in order to do it that you would have needed some connections, right? That you would have needed some kind of money, some kind of power. You would need a, a cleaner, a fixer, somebody to dispose of the body where no one could ever find. These men had no connections, no power, no education, it just seems silly. Not to mention, let's say by chance that the disciples did pull it off, created a hoax. If the gospels then record the hoax, you would have to then explain why these men would then intentionally have the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus be women whose testimony 
in the first century would not have been admissible in a court of law. The Talmud stated that any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is as qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. According to the religious climate, the cultural climate of women in the first century, not only was their testimony not administered and admissible in a court of law, but in addition to that, they would take the word of a condemned robber that was a male over a woman. And so if you're pulling off the greatest hoax, a deliberately crafted hoax, then the authors of the gospels would have never had women be the first at the grave. If the, if the lie was true, if, if this was what they were doing, then it would have had more credibility if men had discovered the empty tomb. And yet the gospels present the apostles cowardly hiding from the authorities while a group of women go to the tomb to anoint his body and then bring the news of an empty tomb. One author says it this way, given the patriarchal world of the earliest Christians, it is not believable that a missionary-minded group would make up such a story. It is not believable that early Christians made up stories about women, particularly Mary Magdalene, as the first and foremost validating witness of the risen Lord. This is not credible, especially when the writers of these gospels, like other early Christians, were hoping for more converts. It seems illogical that 11 men pull off the greatest hopes in history without ever getting exposed, without any of them ever offering a deathbed confession, or any of them admitting that it was a hoax under torture. Every one of them would be tortured for their faith in Jesus and their preaching of the resurrection of Jesus. If it were a lie, a hoax, you would have to conclude that at least one of them would break, especially in seeing their own family members die as well. You know, psychologically, it is intellectually honest to say that the disciples would not have willingly allowed themselves or their closest loved ones to be tortured and killed for a lie. And while it's true that people do die for false beliefs all the time, it's important to point out that people very rarely die thinking that their cause was a hoax. Most of the time they've just bought in hook, line, and sinker, and they think they're dying for the truth. Very, very rarely will someone ever die willingly for what they know to be a lie. J.P. Moreland says it this way, the apostles were willing to die for something they had seen with their own eyes and touch with their own hands. They were in a unique position, not just to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but to know for sure. And when you've got 11 credible people with no ulterior motives, with nothing to gain and a lot to lose, who all agree they observed something with their own eyes, now you've got some difficult explaining to discredit that. Well, chapter 16, verse 1. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, it's Mary the mother of Jesus, Salome, Jesus' aunt, the mother of James, uh, James and John, they brought spices that they might come and anoint him. This would have been additional ointments 
aside from the spices that were initially brought for the burial process. This is akin to kind of coming and paying your last respects. And they couldn't do it early on, right? Because the Sabbath was coming at 6 p.m. They noted where the tomb was. They can't come during the Sabbath. It would have been breaking the law. So they have to wait till the Sabbath comes to a close so that they then can travel the distance to come to the tomb. And we're told that very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, that meaning Sunday, that they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Now let's kind of get back to the scene of activity, the flow of the narration. Because the Jews considered that the beginning and the end of the day began with sunset, you have to keep in mind a timeline for how things progressed very quickly. At 6 p.m. on Thursday, Jesus celebrated Passover with the disciples. 2 a.m. on Friday, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. At 9 a.m. on Friday, Jesus is crucified at Golgotha. At noon on Friday, three hours of darkness begin. At 3 p.m. on Friday, Jesus dies on the cross. Now sometime between 3 and 6 p.m., Jesus' body is removed from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea. He's transported to a garden tomb owned by Joseph. His body is prepared for burial. It's laid in a tomb. The tomb is then secured by a stone, sealed by Rome, and guards, 16 in particular, posted at the door. At 6 p.m. on Friday, the Passover comes to an end, but... The Sabbath officially begins. At 6 p.m. on Saturday, the Sabbath now comes to an end. It's sunset. Sunday officially begins the first day of the week. Now, it's important to establish this timeline because Jesus had predicted three times. He had prophesied three times that what would happen on the third day. He would die on the third day. He would be resurrected to life. Which think think it through. Jesus is buried on Friday, day one. He spent Saturday in the tomb, day two. And he's resurrected sometime in the morning of the day after the Sabbath being Sunday, day three, the third day to be resurrected. Jesus never said he would spend three full days in the tomb, he said he would be resurrected the third day. So sometime early in the morning, our scene, the Sabbath has come to a close. It's past. One gospel notes that it's dark. Mark says that the sun is rising. We find a group of ladies. Mark includes Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome, but other gospel writers add more to their mix. These are a group of ladies who had been at the cross. They had seen Jesus die. Two of them had noted the location and they come to anoint his body to pay their last respects. Mark is clear they know where they're going. Now it is, it is very likely that these ladies, because of the quick progression of the, the closing of the Passover, the beginning of the Sabbath, then the, the darkness, the early part of the morning there on Sunday, it's very likely that they were unaware 
that Pilate had actually posted guards at the tomb. Why? Because Mark tells us that as they're coming, what are they worried about? They're worried that there would be anyone there to help them roll the stone back from the tomb entrance. Obviously, if they knew there were Roman guards present, they wouldn't be so concerned. Jesus is taking care of their concerns without them even knowing it because we're told in verse 4 that when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe. Literally, the robe was glistening. And he's sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. But the angel said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter. I love the fact that the angel specifically points out Peter. I'm not sure Peter loved that fact. I mean, think about it. You're Peter. And the the women come and they're like, this crazy news happened. God sent an angel and he said that we're supposed to come and talk to you, to his disciples and Peter. And if you're Peter, you're thinking, oh no. God knows what I did that I denied him, that Jesus is alive. I mean, Peter would have to be freaking out. The angel continues to say that Jesus is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly. They fled from the tomb. They were trembling. They were amazed. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now now back to the scene, because I want to put together a couple other passages of scripture to help us wrap our brains around the activity. As these women near the garden tomb, the very first indication that something is out of place, something is abnormal, was that the stone, this very large stone, they could see it from a distance, it had been rolled away for it was very large. Now the detail for it was very large is included by Mark to let us know that the stone, it could only be moved with intention that the stone has not been rolled away accidentally, like a big gust of wind had come along and the stone had just kind of rolled its way back. For it was very large, meaning its displacement was not an accident. Now John 20 tells us that when Mary Magdalene saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, what does she do? She ran. So the other ladies move forward, but Mary Magdalene runs. And she comes to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's own plug for himself. And she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Mary Magdalene sees the tomb. She runs. She has not seen what's all taken place. She's not there for the angel. She doesn't know what's happened. She's just alarmed. Something is wrong. Something is out of place. So she hightails it to get Peter and John. So this means that as the rest of the scene unfolds here in Mark's account, Peter and John are now in a foot race to the garden to evaluate the scene for themselves. Now, Matthew 28 provides the explanation for how the stone had been rolled away. We're told in verse 2, And behold, sometime that morning, that there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear and they became like dead men. 
Now, now please note that the, the stone is rolled away by the angel, by the earthquake, not to let Jesus out. It's not like Jesus is inside, pounding on the inside, like, someone let me out. Jesus is already gone. Jesus was not bound by the tomb in any way. The stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let us, humanity, in to witness what had really taken place. Now, the occurrence, the earthquake, the angel appearing, what happens? Well, it explains probably why the guards are now nowhere to be found. There's no body to protect. There's a supernatural being chilling out. They've hightailed it. Now, upon arriving at the tomb, Luke chapter 24, verse 3, tells us that the ladies, they go in, and they didn't find the body of Jesus. And it happened that as they were perplexed, so they're looking at each other thinking, what in the world's happened? That behold, two men stood by them, shining in garments. Then as they were afraid, they bowed their faces to the earth. And then we get the dialogue. Now Mark only mentions one young man clothed in a long white robe, probably emphasizing the, the angel that did the speaking. That there were two, but Mark emphasizes the one that talks. Either way, both Luke and Mark give us the reaction of these women that they were alarmed, that they are freaked out, literally. They are thrown into terror. I mean, this is not Halloween, but this freaked them out. This was scary. The presence of the angelic being, the uncertainty of what's taking place, but the message. The message would transition their terror into amazement. For the angel would tell them, I think some of the greatest, most radical words ever uttered before, that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen. Now, the angel, he provides these ladies with two basic instructions. Look at it. The first instruction is he tells them, see the place where they laid him. And then he says, go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Mark 16 verse 8 then tells us that they go out, they fled the tomb, they were trembling, they were amazed, they said nothing, they were afraid. Matthew 28 verse 8 adds something fascinating, that as these women, he says, went out of the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and they ran to bring word to the disciples, that as they went, behold... Jesus met them and said to them, rejoice. So they came and they beheld him by the feet and they worshiped Jesus. And he told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now Mary Magdalene, her role we'll get to next week. Luke 24 verse 9 tells us that then they returned from the tomb. They told these things to the 11 and the rest of the disciples Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, other women, they told these things to the apostles. But I want you to note something, that their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. I want to make an observation to close with concerning the angelic pronouncement that Jesus had been resurrected. Look at it again. The angel tells them, he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Now, 
it's evident that the angel had been sent by God with a twofold message for this group of women, right? The first message, it's clear. Jesus, he is not here. He's risen. Jesus had been resurrected to life. That's the first message that God gave these women. The second message, the second instruction is that now they needed to go and let the disciples know that Jesus had been resurrected because why? Jesus wanted to meet with them in Galilee. Now, what I find interesting is that between these two instructions, Jesus has been resurrected to life and go tell the disciples because Jesus wants to meet with them that the angel does something interesting, doesn't he? Look at it. What does he do between these two announcements? He invites these women to look for themselves, to see that Jesus had been resurrected before they go and tell others. Think about the progression here. First, there was a claim. The angel made the most radical claim of human history, that Jesus has risen. That was the claim. They heard the claim. The second part of the order is now what? An invitation. The claim, Jesus has risen. Then there's an invitation. See for yourselves. Before what? The third thing. The commission. Go tell others. The claim, Jesus has risen. The invitation, see for yourself. Examine it. Check it out for yourself. And then do what? Once you're satisfied, go tell others. You see, this sets the stage for what we're going to do next Sunday. Because we're going to look at the, the, the resurrection, the claim, in more detail. From a, a few different angles. But this is what I love about God. God makes a claim. Jesus has been resurrected to life. And he doesn't ask you to believe it blindly. The angel doesn't not let them in the tomb. The, the angel doesn't say you shouldn't question it. You shouldn't think for yourself. You shouldn't be skeptical. The angel says, Jesus is not here. He has risen. And you need to go tell others. But there's an invitation to examine the evidence for yourself. To not believe it blindly. To not use the old, well, the Bible tells me so. But to think and to reason, and to examine. For yes, the resurrection is the most radical claim of human history. No other person has ever claimed resurrection from the dead. No world leader, no religious leader, not one person has ever predicted, I'm gonna die and be resurrected from the dead. But Jesus, it is a radical claim. But that radical claim is followed by an invitation to not believe these things blindly, but to look at the truth of the resurrection. Because if you do, you'll be more convinced than ever that Jesus is who he said he is, who he said he was. And if that's the case, then the third, the commission to tell others, that becomes much easier. So, Father, 